Good morning, church. Good to see you this morning. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 17. Revelation 17, we'll look at the whole chapter today. And as you're turning there, let me remind you of… Hold on, I have mask fuzz bothering me. Day is coming when we will be liberated from mask fuzz. As you're turning there, let me remind you of the big uh, sweep of this book of Revelation, book that can be very intimidating to us, but it's helped, I think, as we've broken it down into manageable chunks and decoded some of its terminology. And I gave you at the beginning of our study an outline for the whole book that it breaks down basically to four portions, four big chunks, big chapters. Uh, The first section uh, is in chapters 1 through 3, and all of these have the theme that Christ is King. Chapters 1 through 3, we could say, uh, are about the King who teaches us. The King teaches us, chapters 1 to 3. The next section is the biggest one, chapters 4 through 16, what we've been studying for the last number of weeks, the second section is the king protects us. The king protects us. In chapter 17, we begin the third section, 17 through uh, roughly 20, the king who liberates us. And then 20, 21, 22, the king celebrates us. Now, you notice that the largest section of the whole book is that third one, is that, uh, that uh, second one, the king protects us. Now, that's why, that's why uh, John is writing the book. He's writing to Christians who are battling in the Christian life, who are suffering, <clears throat> who are finding it difficult to endure, to persevere. And so he's encouraging them, the original author, right, uh, recipients, and he's encouraging us. We need to know that we're protected. But we don't need to know that we're only protected. We need to know we're going to be liberated. So he moves on to that, now beginning in chapter 17. And we need the hope of heaven in front of us in which he is going to celebrate us and celebrate our redemption in Christ and all of eternity. That's the way the book ends. Now let me answer. You may say, how in the world do you know that it breaks down into those four sections? I said this when we first introduced it. Each section is introduced by that little phrase, in the Spirit. In the Spirit. I was in the Spirit. Chapter 1, chapters 1 through 3. He says in chapter 4, I was in the Spirit. And now you notice in chapter 17, verse 3, I was in the Spirit. And he'll say the same thing in the forth. He is writing this very artistically so that we can track with him, so that we can follow with him, and he marks it out, marks out the various divisions in this way. Now, another thing that you'll need to know as we read through chapter 17 and chapter 18 is I want to give you some decoding, a reader's guide to some of these images and numbers. Because most of the time when people say, it's just too complicated, that book of Revelation. They're quoting from chapter 17 and 18, which, is, which are the highest uh, uh, concentration of images 
in the book. Well, let me just give you a, a quick reader's guide to some of these images. Whenever we read about the prostitute or the woman, in this, these chapters anyway, the prostitute, the woman, the beast, this is a reference to the Antichrist, and Antichrist means just what it says, anything that is opposed to Christ, any worldview, any person, any, any kingdom, any person, any attitude, anything that opposes Christ is Antichrist, and it's referred to with these various images. A couple of numbers in this chapter. One is seven. Seven is the, the number of completion or supposed completion. The number 10 is a, is a reference to power. And we've read those numbers. We've seen those numbers before. Ten, powerful. Seven, completion. Twelve is also a number of completion. That number is not mentioned here. And then there's one other confusing thing in this passage. There is someone who was and was not and now is. That's the devil. The devil was roaring and raging, and the cross crushed him, dealt him a fatal blow. It's a mortal wound. But he is still alive and kicking, and he's kicking ferociously. He can't accomplish his desired will, but he can make as much terror and havoc as possible. He was, he was not at the cross, that is, his power was broken. He still is a reality. But his coming final defeat is on the horizon. Now, if all of that is still confusing, Revelation is about one thing. Now, you can tell me what it is. What's it about? Jesus wins. There you go. If you miss everything else, that's what we remember. Jesus wins and Jesus is winning. Let's begin reading in verse 1 of Revelation chapter 17. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I'll show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the Spirit into a wilderness and I saw a woman sitting on the scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled greatly, but the angel said to me, why do you marvel? I'll tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit to go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not 
and is to come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. They also are seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, the other has not yet come. And when he does come, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven, and it goes to destruction. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power. But they are to receive authority as kings for an hour together with the beast. These are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast, and the Lamb will conquer them. For He is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those with Him are called and chosen and faithful. And the angel said to me, the waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast, will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put into their hearts to carry out His purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of our God will stand forever. My family and I are great fans of a golf tournament called the Masters. If you don't know what the Masters is, you might just think of it as the Super Bowl of golf occurs in the spring in Augusta, Georgia. Everyone wants to be in that, longs to be in that tournament. And 2016 was a very memorable one, a heartbreaking one for us golf fans. Jordan Spieth, the young boy wonder from Texas who had already attained a, a green jacket, that's the reward you get for winning the Masters was on his way. He was cruising on to another championship, another green jacket. When he came to the 11th, 12th, and 13th holes back in the corner of the national golf course called, uh, and those three holes are called Amen Corner. Because if you ever make it through those three holes, you say a prayer and amen to God because Those holes are designed to destroy you as a golfer. He made it through 11. Number 12 looks very harmless. It's just a short par three. But you might as well be chipping onto a pointy mountain because there's no flat place for the thing, for the ball to land. It's all kinds of illusory uh, background uh, uh, plantings and so forth that throw off your depth perception and, and any number of things that can work on you. Well, Jordan Spieth was cruising on to victory. All he had to do was land that putt exactly, I mean, that, uh, that, that uh, chip exactly where he knew to put it. So he swung, the first ball goes into Ray's Creek, little uh, creek that runs through there. Splash. I thought I heard on TV at the time his, his caddy, Michael Greller, I thought I heard him say, it's only golf. 
If he didn't say that, if you find out that he didn't say that, don't tell me because it ruins a great illustration if he didn't say that. Just keep that to yourself. I thought I heard him say, it's only golf. Jordan puts his ball back down, hits it again, again into Ray's Creek. Puts down another ball, hits it again into the sand. Finally out of the sand, onto the green, finally into the hole, a quadruple bogey, four shots over par, no chance of winning the tournament. Devastating, profound failure, a, a terrible mistake, the announcers would say. But Michael Greller in his social post after it, his caddy, someone who grew up with Jordan Spieth, somebody who grew up watching Jordan and his father play, his dad was his caddy early on. He said, I learned from Mr. Spieth and Jordan watching them. I learned how to lose gracefully. Then he went on to say this, don't feel sorry or sad for us. We will not get stuck in this moment, nor should you. At the end of the day, golf is a sport. See, I knew I heard it. At the end of the day, golf is a sport. I'm especially grateful to have an unconditionally loving wife, Ellie Greller, an unconditionally loving family and friends who treat us the exact same regardless of wins or losses. This isn't life and death stuff. There are far greater struggles that exist in this world than not winning the Masters. What would you attempt if you knew you could not fail? If you could not fail, how differently would you live life? What things would you attempt? What things would you say? What things would you share? What things would you give up? What things would you not care if anyone judged you over? If you knew you could not fail. Well, the truth is you cannot fail. If Christ is your Lord and Savior, you cannot fail because failure, true failure, the only failure that is of eternal significance is to fail to receive the love of God in Christ. Nothing else matters. No other failure is important. No other failure matters into all of eternity. If you know that you are loved infallibly in Jesus Christ, failure, true failure, from God's perspective, is impossible. And if you know that the the one whose love and approval, the only one whose love and approval really matters, has set his love and approval on you, then there should be nothing that would intimidate you or keep you from attempting what God calls you to do. What would you do if you could not fail? Well, it begins, obviously, by receiving Christ as your Lord and Savior. I want to say that at the very beginning of this message, in case you don't live to hear the rest of it, you must receive Christ as the only one who can take away your sins and reconcile you to God and give you eternal life 
And with that comes the infallible assurance and approval of God the Father. And here John describes, uses three words to describe the infallibility of our love in God through Christ. These three words, chosen, called, and faithful. We are chosen, called, and faithful. Those words come at the end of our passage, or come uh, verse 14, near the end of our passage. But the whole rest of the passage serves as a foil to, uh, behind these beautiful words, showing how desperately hopeless is that condition that is other than being called or chosen or faithful. Let's begin with the second word, call or chosen. What does it mean to be chosen? It occurs second in the list. We are called, chosen, and faithful. But let's start with chosen because it most closely fits with the theme of verses 1 through 7 and 14 through 17. First, I want you to notice in verses 1 through 7 and 14 through 17, the opposite of what it is to be chosen. The opposite of being chosen by God is to exist as if no one else's choice matters except your own. Your choices are supreme. They are at the center of all that is important, your rights, your freedoms, your choices. But notice the result of living in that way, living in the, with, with your choices at the center of your life as the driving force, the passion of your life. What's the result? It is to live under the dominion, actually, of someone else's choices, namely the devil's. It's really not to live under your choices. You are dependent on the choices of those around you. You're constantly putting your finger up in the air saying, which way is the wind blowing? I want to be just like everybody else. I want to choose to spend my money, my time, my energies just the way they do. I want to look like they do. I want to talk like they do. I want to think the same way. I want to blend in. It is to be a slave, our text tells us. It is to be molested by the devil, taken captivity, taken into captivity by him. It is ugly. It is unseemly. It is, it is distracting. It's manipulative. And it's characterized, that is, the dominant force of the age is characterized, you notice, by sexual immorality, mentions it several times. The sexual immorality of our day is not a new phenomenon. Sexual immorality is the characteristic of man-centered culture throughout the ages because it is the ultimate way we raise our fists to God and say, I will do what I want to do because it feels right, it feels best. If I determine that I want to have sex with my girlfriend or with my boyfriend, well, it feels right. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's, universally uh, it's universally viewed to be something that is appropriate to get to know one another. If I want to explore and experiment with my gender, if I want to, if I want to uh, have sex with somebody who, who is the same gender as I am, then that's my choice. 
I can look at what I want to look at. I can indulge in what I want to indulge in. I can experiment outside of my marriage. That's not a new thing. That's been characteristic of man-centered ages throughout history. It is also mentioned here not because God is a prude and He's always afraid that somebody's having a good time, so He's always preaching against sexual immorality. But it's because uh, sexual fidelity is so closely connected to who we are in the image of God. It is the only aspect, although there there are several aspects of our being created in the image of God, it is the only one mentioned in the creation story our sexuality, which is directly related to our image-bearing God. I will create man, male and female, I will create him. It is something entire, it is something special. It is something precious to our God and our Father, and it is a gift to us. And when we live in gendered faithfulness, when we live in sexual faithfulness, whether it is through abstinence or through through faithfulness in marriage, we get a taste of what it is to be in fellowship with God and bear His dignity on this earth. And so the devil wars against that because when he can war against our sexual morality, then he can do damage to our experience of the glory and beauty of being created in the image of God. And it's this this preaching, this teaching, this practice of sexual faithfulness that has been one of the keys to the growth of of the Christian faith in the first several centuries. Because not to know this dignity in which you are created is to become a slave in one sense or another. It is to become addicted. It is to become less than your best self. And so Christianity comes along and says, listen, you're made for so much more. You're so much better than this. God made you for so much more. And, and, and sexuality is not only a gift that is given to help you experience what it means to be created beautifully in the image of God, but it is something by, by which you become, you can imitate Christ in your selflessness rather than always looking for someone to conquer or to get something from or to find fulfillment. To be, to, to live as if you are the center of all your choices, is to live this kind of bonded, enslaved, ugly, disappointing life. What is the opposite? The opposite is to receive the free love of God expressed in Jesus Christ, offered in Jesus Christ, receive it by faith alone. And when you do, you realize that you were chosen from before the foundation of the world. Yes, is that, that's that, this, this doctrine in, which is called in Scripture election, that doctrine which is called predestination. It offends some Americans because we want to be so much in control and in charge, but it doesn't offend most of the world where the gospel goes freely. 
As one of my friends from an African Pentecostal preacher once told me, as he was preaching, he talked about he was extolling the election of God, the choice, the predestinating choice of God in his sermon. I asked him if he was in the minority in his view in Africa. He says, what are you talking about? Every Christian in Africa believes in election. How else would we become Christians? The first step in becoming a Christian is to believe that God is God, and if God is God, He is the one who chooses. We would never choose Him on our own. We're dead in our trespasses and sin, as the Bible says. The Bible teaches that those whom He foreknew, He also predestined. Those whom He predestined, He also called. Those He called, He also justified and glorified. The Bible teaches that God, uh, in love, chose us before the foundation of the world, Ephesians chapter 1. The Bible clearly teaches that God had to choose us or we would never choose Him. We have a hymn. I, don't, I didn't look it up in our new hymnal. The hymn is something like this, "'Tis not that I did choose thee, for, Lord, that could not be. My heart would still refuse thee if the choice were up to me. I sought the Lord, another hymn says, and afterward I knew it was the Lord who sought me seeking Him. <laughs> I sought the Lord. I surely intended to seek the Lord, but after I found Him, I found out that it was the Lord all along who was seeking me until I found Him. That's the way the Bible puts it. I never argue about this doctrine. People do try to argue with me all the time about the doctrine. But I say, when they come, I say, let's not argue about it. Let's study the Scriptures together. Let's go to all of your favorite texts, and then let's go to all the texts that you think are my favorite texts, and let's study them all together. And we find out that they're all in the same Bible. We have to learn to embrace them. You can't cut your Bible in half. The, 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 the Lord does call us to embrace Him, to repent and believe, and then it explains that the reason we have is that He first drew us. Now, there are two purposes for this doctrine in the, in the Bible, at least two purposes. One is to humble us. When we're proud and we think that, that even in the Christian life, you know, it's really my choices that are at the center of my Christian living. Then this doctrine of election, this doctrine of God's sovereignty comes, and it smacks us on the head, puts us back in our place. It humbles us. Jesus said, you didn't choose me. I chose you, John 15, 16. Jesus said in John 6, chapter, uh, chapter 6, verse 44, He says, none of you would have come to me had my Father not drawn you. No one comes to the Father except He is drawn by Him to me. It humbles us. The most common purpose for the doctrine of election or choice is to overwhelm us with His love. The, the doctrine of, the, doctrine of, uh, this, of the mention of election, of God's sovereign choice, seldom occurs in the Bible outside of a hymn of praise. You could look at Ephesians 1, for instance, a very long passage. 
And then the whole chapter is, is Paul saying, can you believe it? In love, he chose me before the foundation of the world. How in the world would someone, a zealot like me, a persecutor of the church, how would I have ever come to Christ had he not chosen me and drawn me to himself? And neither would any of you. You were dead in trespasses and sins, subject to the prince of the power of the air. In Romans 8, extolling the measureless love of God. Colossians chapter 3, verse 12, you are beloved, you choice ones. First Peter chapter 1, verse 20, you are beloved and chosen. It assures us that we are infallibly secure in Christ because He says He chose us in the beloved. There's no, there's no statement that He chose us because we were showed some promise to his family. He didn't choose us because we were performing so well, because we were so self-disciplined, such a good citizen. No, it's only in love he chose us, and he chose us and put us in Christ. And the reason he keeps choosing us and holds on to us is he can't see us outside of Christ. We're in the beloved. Now, some of you may have a a self-esteem problem. You're insecure, you're, you're, you've been passed over and you, you think that no one loves you or cares about you. I remember hearing Garrison Keillor one time, the, the voice of the Prairie Home Companion, that national public radio story, talk about as a kid, he was always the last one to be chosen. And he said it was such a punishment. It was always two of them. And they'd say, you take that one and I'll have to take that one. He said, one day, just one day, I always longed that um, Daryl picked me and said, him. I want him, the skinny kid with the glasses and the black shoes. You, come on. You're on my team. But I've never, ever been chosen with such enthusiasm. You may have felt that way your whole life, and I know it's painful. But you've been chosen by God before the foundation of the world. He set his love on you, and he said, you, I want you. Actually, you weren't around for him to say you. He said, him, I want him. Her, I want her. Now I'll have to make a world for them to be born in. And I'll have to bring them into the world. And I'll have to bring them to myself. They'll try every way in the world to get away from me. But I'm going to draw them to myself. I want them. You're wanted. That's so much more beautiful than the devil's way of self-choice. We camped on that one a long time because that's sometimes the hardest pill to swallow. The second one is easy compared to that. When you understand that God has chosen you, then it's, then it's easy to accept that He called you. And that's a churchy word, called. What do we mean by it? It means that He, he's, he's, call, he's, he's, uh, he's appointed you. He's appointed you to do something eternally significant. 
That's what calling means. It, it does mean that He draws you to Himself, but He draws you to Himself to put you to work. Now, what's the opposite of that? That's what we find in verses 8 through 14. The opposite of being called, to be appointed, to, uh, to, to, to be called by name, brought into relationship, and then appointed to something eternally significant, the opposite of that is to be unknown and to be temporary, to serve an unknown force that is temporary in its power and influence. So you'll see that in verses 8 through 14. Those who are not called, not in a relationship with Christ, well, they are the victims of this seven-headed beast with ten horns, rises from the bottomless pit. This one that seems to have power, ten horns, seems to be the reigning worldview that control everything, even all the worldviews of the nations. But it lasts, verse 12, for only an hour. Now, an hour in the Bible usually refers to a generation. So he says, if you're not following Christ, if Christ, you've not responded to Christ's call for your life, given Him your life, you're not living according to that calling, then you're living by Satan's direction. Now, nobody admits that. There may be some people here who you say, well, I mean, I'm going to church. I always go to church. I, 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 I would identify as a Christian, but there's nothing in your life that indicates that you're a Christian. You're really of the church of Satan. Now, no one goes around saying, hey, I'm a member of the first church of Satan. I mean, there's some nuts that do that, but otherwise, we, 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 we are beguiled and that's what it means when it says that this, there was a, there, there, it appeared to be seven kings, but there really was an eighth king, and he was connected to the seven kings. What's that all about? There's seven earthly kings. That is, it seems like the majority opinion worldwide is there is no Christ, Christianity is a farce, and the enlightened way is whatever we tell you this week is the enlightened way. And then the day comes when you think that you have been showing, you've been following the enlightened way, you've been swimming with the tide, you've been doing what everything, what everybody else says is uh, mostly the right thing, the consensus opinion. The day will come when out from behind the curtain, out from behind the seven, stands the eighth, who is the devil himself. And it's revealed that he was directing these these seven. He was directing the dominant worldviews that tried to intimidate you into fitting in. And you realize that you've been duped and you've bought a lie. No one in that, you were not known. And, and those who were leading you are temporary. Even those political forces that you followed. Has any political force, any political figure, any political ideology lasted more than a generation, really? There are some despots. There are some general ideas. But I can make this prophecy. I can prophesy that whoever is in the White House today will not be here in a generation. I'm a great prophet. Someday, whoever is in there now, whoever will be in there in the next four years, there will come a day 
when he or she stands on Marine One and waves like this and they fly away and you really, they're nothing. But there will never come a day when King Jesus is irrelevant. And you're called to be His ambassador, to be His emissary. You may have any number of jobs. They may be very disappointing. You may be passed over for all kinds of promotions. You you, you may never get your dream career, but this calling will never go away. You are called to walk with God and to call other people to do the same. That's your calling. No one can stop you from it. No one can take it away from you. And no matter what your job is, you can continue in that. And in the great day when all the awards are, when 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 the trophies are revealed, when all of eternity is played back, that will be the only thing you care about. I'm so glad I walked with Christ. And I'm so glad that these other people that I see here who were not Christians and I brought them to Christ, who were discouraged in their faith, they were tempted to quit, and I encouraged them to walk. That's the only thing that will matter. You're chosen. You're given a calling that you can never be fired from, that you can never be canceled from. You say, I don't know if I can do that. That's a long time. Well, there's the third assurance. There's the third promise that that God loves you and He is going to enable you to be faithful. That's in verses 6 and 9, 14 and 17. God has called you faithful in 14 and 17. God has put it into their hearts to carry out His purpose. He enables them earlier in 6 and 9. He enables them to finish even as martyrs. You notice in verse 6, He saw a woman drunk with the blood of saints, the blood of martyrs of Jesus. He doesn't say he saw the woman drunk with the blood of saints. He also saw them drunk with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. He says, in effect, to be a follower of Christ is to be a martyr. In this world, you will be persecuted if you desire to live a godly life. We should each assume that we will die for Christ and be surprised if we die of natural causes. Because to follow Christ faithfully is to be trustworthy. That's the word. Another way it could be translated. These things, Paul said, entrust to trustworthy people. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2. Well done, he says, good and trusted servant. That's what we want to hear at the great day. To be trustworthy, to be loyal to Christ and faithful will inevitably draw the criticism both of the world and of professed believers. If you're getting it from both sides, you may be pretty well assured that you're living as a follower of Christ. There are just as many, there are becoming just as many language police among Christians as there are among the world. And and so to follow Christ, to follow Him faithfully, will mean that we will take slings and arrows from all sides. What are we going to, what do we need to endure that? 
What do we need to do, do to endure those who tell us, if you speak this way, if you describe someone this way or use this particular word, then you are not a Christian. You're adding to the gospel. Or if you speak this way or use this language, then you are, use the word, you're complicit or homophobic or you're anti-racist or whatever. We need three things according to our text. We need, number one, we need wisdom. Our text tells us in 6, 9, 14, 17, we need wisdom. And wisdom is this. Wisdom is a biblical mind. It's a Christian mind. It is a mind that is trained. It is cut with deep gospel grooves so that reflexively and intuitively we know what Christ's will is in any situation. Well, how do you get that kind of wisdom? Well, you use the means of grace. You engage regularly in worship. Here, God is forming you in a place like none other. You stay in the Word. You learn the Word. You pray. You're mentored by other people. And then you pray for wisdom, as James tells us in James 1. But that's just not the, that wisdom that he's saying to pray for is not just generic wisdom. It's specifically wisdom to know how to live while you're suffering. Wisdom to know how to live faithfully for Christ while you're suffering. That's the, that's the wisdom of James chapter 1. The result will be you will be pure, peace-loving, considerate, submissive, merciful, impartial, and sincere. That's a Christian mind. The second thing we need, we find in verse 17, is confidence in God's sovereignty. This confidence that turns away from all the fear mongers and says, I know it looks bad out there. It's even bad for me right now, but I believe King Jesus wins. I'm going to keep walking forward. The third thing we need is what we always need is we go back to Jesus again and again and again. I don't mean to leave you the, the impression that, uh, that, the, that the way to gain wisdom is to, is to think the right way. It is constantly to go back to Jesus and get His weaponry, to get His protection, His shield of faithfulness, Ephesians 6, 6, the sword of truth. To come back to Jesus and say, I don't have the strength to go forward. Please, Lord Jesus. Remind me that I'm chosen. Remind me that I'm called. And make me faithful. What would you do if you knew you could not fail? Well, another thing I'll confess in terms of sports is that I love March Madness. It's that time of year when many of us neglect our families for long periods of time, watching four or five screens at once, basketball players. You can't even see the ball or so many screens up there. My favorite March Madness was, was in the middle 2000s. And a, and a team called the South Dakota State Jackrabbits made it to the first round. Unfortunately, they played a team with a mascot 
known as the Wolverines. Jackrabbit is no match for a Wolverine. I was fascinated with their coach, Scott Nagy. Nagy was a roommate of one of our members at the time, maybe one of the members here as well, when he was at Delta State. Nagy is an outspoken Christian. He's now at Wright University in Dayton, Ohio, but he was, he's an outspoken Christian and he loves the country of Haiti. He's adopted a couple of Haitian kids. He leads a ministry that supplies shoes for kids. Often you can see him coaching barefooted in order to draw attention to this charity that he supports. But what was most striking that year was his pregame speech to his, to his players. Here's what he said. I want you to play like you're loved. I want you to play freely. Love isn't dependent on your performance. No matter how you play, you are loved. Play with that in mind. They couldn't fail. Even though they did lose the game, they ultimately couldn't fail. They were loved. You become very dangerous when you know you're loved. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I thank you for the assurance that we are in you, the beloved, the cherished Son of God. We beg you, Father, to seal that love to us with the Holy Spirit, that we would know at an emotional level, beyond an intellectual level, that we are loved as much as we can ever be loved, and out of that love that we would live full throttle for the kingdom of God, attempting things that we never would have otherwise, living fully into our calling and our chosenness, living faithfully in response to your grace when it doesn't make sense. Oh, Lord, make us a light that attracts others in the darkness. In Jesus' name we pray. God's people said, amen.